Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey everyone, this is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thanks for being here. Today marks the 20th anniversary of 9-11. In the intervening years, much has been written about the day, the attacks, the wars that followed, the crimes committed. There's been seemingly endless literature and documentaries about the nature of these attacks, about who's responsible, why and where they came from. But regardless of what you believe happened on that fateful morning, the indisputable truth is that Many lives were lost. Many fathers and mothers who would not grow old with their sons and daughters. This episode is in loving memory of those families. But it's also in honor of the first responders, the people who showed up to work to help a nation in repair. Firefighters, policemen and women, EMS, construction workers, the Salvation Army... For 10 months, these people put their life on the line and families on hold. A rescue and recovering project that unified a grieving country, that attempted to offer closure to families affected by the attacks. Each day, these responders shuttled in and out of Ground Zero to produce the demolition, excavation, and removal of tens of thousands of debris. To help us remember that period, we sat with four people who were there on the ground. While you hear these stories, we've created a virtual exhibit to accompany you. If you visit talkeasypod.com slash aftermath, or just look in the description of this episode on your phone, click that link, you can follow us through a guided tour of the aftermath. These remarkable images were provided and taken by Joel Meyerowitz, 
one of the finest photographers of the last century. He spent nine months down at Ground Zero, creating this seminal archive titled Aftermath. If you visit talkeasypod.com slash aftermath, or just look in the description of this episode on your phone, click that link. You can follow us through a guided tour of the aftermath. You don't need to look at these photos to appreciate the stories you're about to hear, but we do hope you follow along. Given the subject matter, some of the material in this episode is sensitive, and same goes with Joel's photography, but what you're about to see is the only comprehensive monographic testament to the thousands of workers who spent months cleaning up the devastation. To start, here's Joel on how that came to be. Hi, Sam, it's Joel Marowitz. I'm 83. I was 63 when I first went into Ground Zero, and I didn't have a job. It was a self-appointed mission of compassion and history. I'm a native New Yorker, a boy from the Bronx. I grew up on the streets in the working-class ghetto in the Bronx. I wanted to be of service in some way. There was very little I could do. And then I saw the opening that Mayor Giuliani had basically closed, and I figured out how to get into the last little bit of space that there was. The first thing I did was walk downtown to uh, stand on, on Chambers Street as close to the pile as I could. And really there was nothing to see because they had already barricaded um, the entirety of the site with cyclone fencing and they draped big tarpaulins over everything so you couldn't really see in. I only saw smoke rising. And standing in a crowd of people, I raised my camera just to sort of look and see what might be seen, which was nothing. And suddenly I got a whack on my shoulder, and I turn around, and there's a cop in my face. And she says, hey, buddy, no photographs. This is a crime scene. I'm shocked. And I said, what do you mean this is a crime scene? The crime scene's over there, inside. We're standing here on the street. We're... This is where citizens are, you know, and I want to go in there and and work. And she said, Mayor Giuliani has said no photography allowed, so don't raise your camera here or I'll take it away from you. And I said, well, you won't take it away from me because there's no reason to, and I want to know why there's no photography. And she said, I don't know. That's what he said. I had one of those light bulb moments where I thought, oh, he can't do this. He can't stop history from being written. We have First Amendment rights here, and and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to make an archive of everything that's going on so that we have a historical record. And so I, I started to create whatever lines of communication I had with people who were in the know in government or had connections to people in the government, uh, I called somebody at the Museum of the City of New York. And bit by bit, I I saw that I wasn't going to get much help. And so I turned to a friend of mine, Adrian Benepe, who was the commissioner of parks in New York City. Adrian knew that I was a straight arrow. 
He gave me a worker's pass from the park department. The next morning, he had one of his Smokies, a ranger, drive me into the site on a little three-wheeled vehicle and drop me in the middle of ground zero. My goal was to photograph everything that was going on in terms of the search and the removal of the debris, the workers whose efforts lasted for nine months, all of this uh, as if I was recording the Civil War or I was a World War II combat photographer. I mean, I stayed in for nine months, I photographed regularly, and I built what stands now as the World Trade Center Archive. My name is Amadeo Pulley. I'm 55 years old. Uh, I am a retired New York City detective. Uh, at the time of 9-11, I worked for the NYPD Arson and Explosion Squad. Where were you on 9-11? Actually, I, I had taken off that day to take care of my son. My wife went to work. Uh, she worked at Kennedy Airport. And that morning, it was a beautiful day. I was there uh, with my son, and I get a call. And it was my mother. She basically said, are you at the office? Are you working? Are you okay? I'm like, what are you talking about? Because turn on the TV, there's a plane that hit the towers. I immediately called my wife. I said, listen, I don't know what's going on. You need to get back home. She raises, she picks up my daughter, raises home. I told her, don't even shut the car off. I'm taking the car right into Manhattan. I got to go. I got to be at the office. My guys are working. Uh, I raced downtown Manhattan, but I did get stopped. I was going through the, uh, what's called the BQE Expressway. Luckily, I didn't get stopped too far behind. Uh, I was in like the second row of cars, but you could see the towers clearly from the bridge. And the police just right there, not letting anybody through. Basically, they had shut everything down. I did have my credentials, uh, a light that I put on the dashboard, and I was waiting for them to catch my eye. I didn't want to start yelling you know, out the window. But before I did, I, could, I noticed a man on my right-hand side in the car. He was so distraught, and he was basically like banging his head and his hands on the steering wheel, looking at the towers. I, I can never forget that scene. Finally, uh, the officer looks at me. Uh, I told listen, uh, I'm with the arson explosion squad. I got to get down there. So I get down there, park. I found a sergeant from Missing Persons and um, one of my teammates uh, from the arson explosion squad. And we try to get a game plan going to meet whoever was down there at the towers. Uh, at this point, I believe the second one had hit, but they were still up. So we start heading over, not very far from the NASDAQ building. It's a big black building that's located just east of the towers, like basically across the street. We started getting closer and at this point, there was no sun. You couldn't see the sky. It was all gray. It was really dark. And all of a sudden, as we're racing, going towards the towers, we hear a real deep sound. It was sound like a... And so as it got louder and louder, someone somewhere, I don't know who started yelling, it's a third plane. And then everything started shaking. At this point, everybody's pretty much just running and just confused. So I started realizing I don't have a radio because we didn't have time to get radios or anything. I don't have any communication. You don't have any cell. You don't have anywhere to contact anybody. So you don't know who's where, what's going on. So uh, I finally found a THV, uh, NYPD THV with radios. They were handing out radios. And then I head back towards headquarters. When I get there, everybody's just all over the place trying to figure out what had just happened. What did your wife think about you going into town? We didn't really have much time to talk. It was just like, be careful. And I basically told her, listen, 
shut the windows, shut the doors, lock up. I don't know what's going on. I'll try to call you. I mean, after we spoke, I actually didn't come home for probably a day or so to come home, change, shower, and go back. There were long days. There were like 18, 20-hour days. It was very long days. In the aftermath, as you start the recovery project, what does your job entail? At first, it was trying to rescue, but there really wasn't that many people to rescue. You know, I don't want to get too graphic, but most of it was just recovering basically body parts. The World Trade Center, it's very, it's got, I, don't, I forgot how many floors that go down. You know, there was stuff, cars intact. So people technically probably could have survived, but who knows with all that smoke. Uh, but at some point we were in the subway system. It was more towards the middle of September. The beams that it shot through there, these are 20 ton beams. They just went right through the concrete and they just embedded themselves in the subway system. It was, it was unbelievable. What did your typical day look like in those first couple of weeks? First couple of weeks were very long days. We'd go there, uh, meet up at headquarters. You'd set up with your team until they could figure out what hours, who's going to work what, so they'd shorten them up a little bit. But it still ended up being 16, 17-hour days. The first couple of days was a very a lot of bucket brigade type things where, you know, the lines were long and you just guys were digging and you just pass buckets and try to dig and find and, and looking for people. And then it was more of uh, cutting out sections, seeing if there were people there, what we can find, anything. And then at a certain point, we were told to look for the black box, things like that. So, you know, there was, every day was different. It was a lot of like hope you could find something. And then, like I said, it was more recovery to to get samples of DNA, you know, for, for closure for people. When you're looking for the bodies and the black boxes, how the hell do you do that and not fall apart? There were a lot of sad days there because of the families that would go down there looking for their loved ones. You know, it wasn't just the police and firemen that passed away that day. It was, it was a lot. I mean, there's a whole building filled with people and stories and families, you know, fathers, mothers, uncles, all that stuff. One thing that was that I do remember is, is, is that everybody got closer. At, at least it felt like the world had gotten a little bit closer, uh, a little bit more tight knit. All the volunteers were amazing. I mean, there were just so many people coming from all over the place. Volunteer firemen, volunteer ambulance workers, the Salvation Army, different companies set up stations for food to eat because you know there was nowhere to eat, really eat down there. So there was a lot of sad times, not really good times, but better days than others there. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of tension there too. What do you mean? You know, between the fire department and the police department and, and, and sometimes like who's going where and who's doing what. And you can prepare all you want. Nobody's prepared for something like this. Nobody's prepared. You know, uh, they lost a lot of guys at firemen you know, th- that day. I mean, I mean, we still continue to lose firemen and, and police officers every day from cancers and things like that. But down there, you know, everybody's processing differently. Tempers sometimes flared because it was just long days and people would walk around there that shouldn't be there. And then, you know, guys would get upset you know, kick people out, things like that. I mean, Joel, uh, Myro, he almost got kicked out of there quite a few times. I almost kicked him out of there until because I, I thought at first he was just surveying because he had this old camera and he would put the hood over and take his pictures. But I thought he was just a guy surveying the, the land. And I was like, well, what are you doing? And I'm just taking some pictures. I'm like, who are you? You know, and I immediately got defensive, like, no, you can't take pictures down here. And then he explained the whole thing. What did he say to you that convinced you to not kick him out? He just showed me this letter that he got from, I think it was the mayor's office or something like that. You know, somebody, I'm sure he showed it and some people were like, who cares? You know, I don't don't care about a letter. But what he explained to me was that somebody's got to keep a record of this, you know, video, photography, whatever. Somebody's got to keep a record of this. And and, and that's, you know, that for me was like, okay, that's fine. So I went over, I asked my lieutenant, you know, hey, listen, this guy's name is Joe Meyerowitz, blah, blah, blah. And I 
kind of, we carried his camera, we carried some of the equipment for him, and we brought him up to the Amex building. That's basically what I wanted to show him because it was, I thought it was just such an incredible thing to see out there, especially at night. Were you or any of your colleagues in this photograph here aware of the potential health concerns? Oh, uh, yeah, we were all aware. There was an area that we were digging, and uh, a couple of guys from the, uh, what was it, like OSHA or DEP, you know, the Environmental Protection or whatever, they, they, you know, they monitor the air. And they're like, hey, what are you guys doing? What are you doing here? I'm like, oh, we're, we're working, we're digging, what do you think we're doing? Uh, and you see the masks that we're wearing there. They're good, they're, they're not great, uh, the ones that are hanging around my neck. And, and I don't even know what I was wearing that particular day, because it started off with paper masks, basically, painter's master which which basically is nothing and he goes well you shouldn't be here I'm like why he goes uh, out of a scale from one to ten this is about an 11 or 12 if you don't want to be inhaling this stuff you know so we were aware and the group's response to that was what we have a job to do basically nobody nobody left we do what we do for a living because you know what we did for a living because that's what we want to do we were there to help and you know if we were finding a lot of you know uh remains that's a good thing. It's closure for somebody. How many of the men in this photo are still here with us? Oh, thankfully, everybody. Later on, we lost Carmen Figueroa of cancer. She was a detective also at the Arson Explosion Squad. I mean, on the first day, we lost a bomb squad member, Danny Claude Richards. He, he actually went in and uh, never came back out. So we did lose. And, and of course, we lost other, other people uh, later on due to cancer. Why don't we take a look at a man in a basket flying the stars and stripes with a Native American at its center. I can't say enough about the iron workers. Those guys were crazy. Why crazy? They just walked on beams like it's nothing. They're not afraid of heights, so it's kind of like, you know, just, uh, you know, these beams don't look so big in these pictures, but they are 20, 30 ton beams and like they look like pixie sticks, right? But when you're working on top of them, you have to understand, like, you don't know if, if they're going to shift. And there's really nothing underneath. There were giant gaping holes underneath. And they were smoldering to the day we left in, in November. They were still hot underneath. So all of September and October, it was hot underneath. You know, you could still see smoke in, in picture 109. It lasted for quite a few months. I mean, it was incredible. But these guys, they walked across these beams like it was nothing. Like it was absolutely nothing to them. Well, what's something about the aftermath of 9-11 that you think people don't understand but ought to? I don't know if people realize how, how great this country really is when it's something like this happens, the way everybody just came together. I mean, and actually, it wasn't even just the United States. It was like the world. I mean, we had guys from uh, France there helping out, Mexico, just all over the world. And everybody came together. It was, like a, it, it was, it was pretty amazing. I mean, there were people, whatever they could do. The kids were writing letters, whatever it was, it all helped. I, I don't know if people can realize that, you know, this country is pretty good. Why don't we take a look at the handmade banners on the fence of St. Paul's Chapel? Yeah, I remember there was so many notes and letters and just words of encouragement for everybody down there. You, you notice, okay, people care, you know, they're doing whatever they can to help out. What's it like looking at this book 20 years removed? Unbelievable. It's funny, at the Sphere one day, it was very hot underneath on my boots, and out of nowhere, I told Joel this, and I totally forgot about it, but he reminded me that uh, I told him about these butterflies, these monarch butterflies that I saw, and I didn't know the story about monarch butterflies or the 
folklore. Basically, it represents you know the souls of people, the Mexican in the Mexican culture that they, they represent like the souls of the people that are gone. So it was kind of interesting. You've said a couple times. I don't want to be too graphic about the job you did. You're doing a job no person should ever have to do. And when you look back on it now, do you wonder how you did it? No, you pretty much stuff everything down. In law enforcement, uh, and pretty much, and, and especially in New York, where you see a lot, where it's a busy area, and you see a lot of crime and a lot of murders and things like that, you kind of just get used to it, I guess. You just, it's just part of the job. I really feel bad for people who are not used to this type of thing. And obviously, I'm not used to something like the World Trade Center, but something, you know, as heavy as this. And I, mean, I have a friend who, who witnessed people jumping, you know, and he's just a, you know, just a guy who was working and, and it was, his building was pretty much level to see these people jump and see their faces and everything. I mean, that's so traumatizing for people, you know, it's for anybody, even law enforcement or firemen, whoever. But for a person who's never seen anybody die or, you know, at this point in my career, I'd seen plenty of people pass away many different ways. So for me, it's kind of like, okay, it's another day at work. What trauma has stayed with you? During that time, I was more aware of my surroundings as far as like, I don't know if it was paranoid or whatever, but if I saw something, I used to, I used to call 911, even on my off time. If I saw a box somewhere, if I saw something some, somewhere, you know, your, your senses kick in. You don't trust as many people, you know, things like that. I mean, as, as, as a detective or law enforcement, you kind of always have your guard up anyway. You're always watching everything you do, every, what people, what hand they use, what, uh, how they walk, what they wear, things like that. You're just more aware. Can you walk us through what happens in your life in the intervening years between your work being finished on the recovery project and and now oh it's a lot mellower now that i'm in uh, i'm in north carolina but after 9-11 you know you just move on with your job uh, i went on and became a hostage negotiator you know moved around the department a little bit i like how you're saying your next job was more mellow and your next job was a hostage negotiator Okay, maybe mellow is not the right word, but it was it was it was uh, definitely interesting times uh, when you get called. That was my I think that was that and the arson explosion score my two favorite uh, units to be in. So I mean, I retired, but really went back to work. So I didn't give myself any time to decompress or anything. But then I did, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to take some time off. And while decompressing, I you know started feeling some back pain, and so I went to go check it out, and ended up finding a tumor in my kidney. There was cancer and all this other stuff. You know, and since it was 9-11 related, so it hits a little bit more. It was kind of like, oh boy, back to this. We're, we're talking about 9-11 again. But, you know, I was also, also had a respiratory issues and sinus problems because of all the stuff we inhaled. And, and that was just part of the, uh, you know, uh, so many people got the same stuff. But thank God, I mean, I had really good doctors and the Sloan Kettering. Uh, they took really good care of me, had some you know, surgery, and that was that. I've been cancer-free ever since, so can't really complain. But when you have these illnesses that remind you every day of those months down there, how do you move forward from that? Honestly, you just got to just keep grinding. Just You don't want to forget things, and but you can't dwell on, on, on everything all the time. You really can't, or it's just going to eat you up. Therapy helps. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you've uh, actually did a little bit of that, because I didn't realize that I needed it. So I actually went to speak to someone, and like, yeah, it's perfectly normal. The person, you know, who I was talking to, the therapist, she was like, yeah, I talked to a lot of responders with the same. We all give the same answers, basically. You know, she said, like, you guys all pretty much sound the same. What do you want with the next few years? What would you like to do? 
I don't know. I just have a good watch my kids do their thing. Whatever, whatever makes them happy. I just want to see them happy, and that's that's. I'm good with that. Did you grow up in New York? Yeah, Queens. Yeah. It seems like as a result of 9/11 and then your work after, you decided I, I needed to leave the place I grew up in. Was it hard leaving New York behind? Yeah, I mean, I miss a lot of things. I have my closest friends are there. I mean, you miss that. You miss pizza, things like that. But uh, but it was the best move. It was it was time, and and after the after the the cancer uh, scare there, I kind of was just like you know what I've had enough in New York. We're, we're good. It took it took my kidney. We're, we're good. <laughs> we're done. Visiting is nice, and coming back home here is, is is nice too. Do you think you'll ever visit the museum? Yeah, I'll eventually get down there. I don't know when, but yeah, I'll eventually get down there. Why haven't you? Do you think? I don't know. I I don't know. I just haven't had the urge. I don't even watch the you know, 9-11 documentaries and the, for the, for at least 10 years, I couldn't even look at that stuff. Even now, sometimes I'll see some pictures. I'm like, oh, that was bad. Why don't we take a look at, this is a welder wounded by an explosion of buried ammunition in the customs building. I remember hearing the shot go off. He's lucky he didn't lose his eye. I remember that vividly. I mean, there was one day where I was sitting on a couple of beams. They were a, a little bit on top of each other. They were huge huge beams and uh there was a guy next to me and for whatever reason i just hopped off and i just walked away not more than five seconds later they shifted and they pinned this guy in there he lived but uh he was there for quite a while it was scary this is october 28th what's happening in this photo it's a memorial service uh, uh the mayor had uh, giuliani had allowed people to go down there and uh, because nobody was allowed down there there was too much going on it was dangerous but uh that day that I memorial. Yeah, on page 171, I remember being on top of those buildings, especially the one, I think that's building five, World Trade Center five. From, I'm pretty sure we were out there. We found uh, the frame of the plane, actually. Were you ever angry about what happened? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, you get angry at terrorists and stuff like that. It's only normal. But then what, what can you do? In that aftermath, what made you proud to be an American and what made you less proud? It's like going back to before, just the unity. That's something to be proud of, the way everybody came together. Less proud? Probably not stopping those planes. <laughs> Maybe something could have been done before that if we knew. To prevent what happened, that would have been uh, something. You know, but less proud? I don't, other than that, I don't think anything. I mean, there's nothing that we did, you know, that anybody on the ground did wrong. Nothing that I was being to be less proud of. You said that you don't feel like people have that same unity now. I don't really see it. Everybody's on their own thing. I don't remember what it was like for September 10th, if you know the country was closer or not, because I can't really can't remember. But they were close back then, you know, right after on September 11th and moving forward for a while, quite a long time. It seems like you're determined to not have those months define your life. No, no. I'd rather be defined as a good dad. <laughs> you know, just that, that was my past and we'll leave it there. I don't want to forget because you can't. If I wanted to, I could never forget that uh, those times. But there's a lot more to life. Uh, we keep going. I mean, there's uh, so many people have passed away since. I, I, I got to enjoy what I have right now. Amadeo Puli. Stay safe. Thank you. My name is Yvonne Sanchez. I am retired from the New York City Fire Department, EMS Division. 
I am 55 years old. On the day of 9-11, you're celebrating your 11th year as an EMT. What do you remember about that day? My job and my, and my team, well, EMS job, was body recovery and identification, which entails working with um, NYPD canine search and rescue dogs. When the canine would um, sit anywhere in, inside the, the pit, we knew that in that area there was a victim. And so that's when our team would come and, you know, with the deepest amount of respect, remove the victim, place it in a body bag, and then take it to one of the makeshift morgues. And we would search the body and if they had some identification on them, then we would log it in with that identification of the location, time, and date. And the because my job was to pronounce officially pronounce the body, they would go to to the Bellevue morgue and be notified by their relatives. And yet, even in spite of not being there right away, you do decide to go down. And you do work in in the aftermath of this. What was your job in the aftermath of 9-11? I was working. My shift started at 7 o'clock in the morning. It was a beautiful day. And I received a 9-1 call for an elderly who had fallen. And he was known to me because it was in my area where I, you know, where I work. And so... When I went to the hospital is when, as we were with the stretcher going into the emergency room, we see what's going on at the World Trade Center. And um, so we quickly got our patient triaged and we went to ground zero. But the problem was, is that now we had traffic and you had everybody going the opposite way. So I didn't show up until after the buildings collapsed. And I believe that this gentleman, this elderly sweet gentleman that I've I've responded to his house before, that he saved my life because I would not be here right now because, like I said, I did start at 7 o'clock. And that probably would have been my first call of the day was responding down to 9-11. How often do you think back on those two roads? Every day. Every day. Every day. He was a really kind gentleman, very famous. And I would sit with him because I've been there before where he couldn't get up. He'd um, fallen but never gotten injured. And I would sit with him for a few minutes because he had no relatives. He was the, the reason why I'm still alive today. In those early days when you're trying to recover remains, what is your state of mind? Well, I had lost a dear friend of mine. He was EMS and he had laddered over to FDMI. And his, his last location was walking over to the Millennium Building. There's where we lost contact with Hector. And he had five children and a very lovely wife. And all I wanted to do was bring closure to those kids, which we never did. So every day that I would go there, I would say to myself, today is the day that we find Hector. And ultimately, we never were able to recover his body. At some point, did you give up looking for your friend? 
No. No, uh, we buried uh, an empty casket before the recovery efforts stopped in May, but we all hoped that we can recover some remains to bring some closure to his family. And in my mind, I had to, I had to be there. And why is that? I felt that if I wasn't there, then there wouldn't be closures to thousands of um, family members that are waiting for their family member to be recovered. Let's take a look at you down there. A photo taken by accident, I think. What do you remember about this? Well, I was just entertaining myself mentally. And I see a gentleman taking random pictures down at the pit. And again, we used to get a lot of looky-loos and stuff like that. So I walked up to him and I said, what are you doing? He had said, I don't remember exactly, but I did believe that he mentioned the mayor and that he was taking pictures for the mayor. I said, yes, no, <laughs> uniform members did not like Giuliani. I hated him. <laughs> but it. But anyway, so when he said the mayor, I kind of laughed and I go, oh, okay. And... We spoke for a few minutes, and he asked for my permission to take the picture, and I said, sure. Um, the usual cheeky response that I give to anybody asking for my picture is that, please don't make me look fat. And he started laughing. He goes, I promised. And I think we spoke for a few seconds. He asked for my name, and I told him, you can also include that I was in the New York City FDNY calendar. And he said, I will. And that was it. When you look back at this photo of yourself and some of your other colleagues, what does it make you think of? 20 years later, that lady there didn't think there were going to be people dying from illnesses related to 9-11. And I look at all these people on the same page and the next, that gentleman who has a larger picture is he still alive or is he suffering from any of the illnesses that we were told didn't exist back then? Because I remember the working from October to December with just a regular face mask and having OSHA show up with these massive trailers and saying, you have to be outfitted for um a hazmat mask, and I'm like, oh, so everything I've said prior to this is true because the people were saying, oh, you, you don't know what you're talking about. I said, there is something definitely wrong with this air, and, um, and it turned out that it was. What was your response once you found out there's definitely something wrong with the air? Well, you could see like this dust all over my hair and on my clothes. And I would go home every single night and I would regurgitate this horrible color. And it wasn't like I was eating down there because the, the water was contaminated. We had to have food brought in and it was just horrible. It was just like I would have trouble breathing at night. And I'm thinking, well, okay, this is just temporary. I didn't realize that. 20 years later, I would be diagnosed with asthma, COPD. I was diagnosed with cancer. By the end of the 10 months, I had eight bleeding ulcers in my stomach that the gastroenterologist said that 
I think you have cancer. We have to do all these biopsies. And it turned out that I just had this parasite in my stomach that I had to be put on antibiotics for three months to aggressively kill it. Once the recovery project ends in May of 2002, how long after until you realize you have some of these sustained conditions? I knew soon after, but I did not put the connections between it being World Trade Center or it being something else. And when the fire department started the World Trade Center monitoring program, the doctors there said, when I presented my symptoms, they said, well, we did a study. These are the symptoms that you would present if you were exposed to these types of toxic chemicals. And he goes, you are presenting chronic sinusitis, chronic sinus infection, chronic lung infections, and, you know, and the issues with, with your GI intestinal tracts. And he said, those, are those, those were the immediate effects from 9-11. And I was told that a lot of uniformed female members were not being able to carry their pregnancy the full term, that they were having ovarian issues, or their children were being born with certain forms of medical defects. They kept saying it could have been the radios, and I'm like, what do you mean radios? You know, it seems like everybody was saying, well, 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 you know. And I remember in the beginning, going back to day one, we were using Stuyvesant High School and the elementary school adjacent to it. There were doctors volunteering down there and canine and the veterans, the vet, the veterinarians were down there treating the, um, the canine. And so there was a lot of stuff coming in there. At one point, we were using it as a makeshift morgue. And I remember going home and then coming back and my superiors telling me, we're moving, we're moving command further down and, because we have to open the school. And, and I said, but how are you going to open this school? We literally destroyed this school. Three floors of the school, there were dogs defecating in, in there because they were traumatized from doing what they were trying to do. People were donating all this food and they bought it into auditorium and it was just sitting there and it was rotting. But how can you not have this properly decon before these kids. So I was angry about that. And then I remember my superiors go, they look at me and they go, it's above our pay grade. And I went, that is just messed up. I used more profanity than that. I said, people do not care about children. And, um, you know, and I had to do my job and we had to move further down. You don't know how much I was an advocate to making sure that school was clean and it just went on deaf ears. It really did. I was so angry. And, and, you know, who am I? I'm just one person. Did it make you feel powerless in that situation? Oh, shit. Anybody who's below a lieutenant is powerless. Even a lieutenant or a captain is powerless. You know, you voice your opinion and your disconcerns, and um, they say, okay, don't do your job. You're here to do this job, not be a politician. And... 
I mean, I was a woman, you know, women 20 years ago did not have the same respect as they do now. And, and they don't even have that much respect in, as a uniform member. So imagine a woman, because they would say, oh, you just be hysterical. And it turned out to be correct. Those high school schools, students were dealing with also health issues. How many male colleagues of yours said, what are you doing here? I asked myself that question, what am I doing here every day? Like, every day I was down there. And every night I would go home and I'd say, I'm not doing this anymore. And the next day I would get up and I would do it. And on my way down, I would pep myself with a nice pep talk. Today is the day we find Hector. Today is the day we find Hector. And that day never happened. Every time I have to go down to World Trade Center, I apologize that we couldn't find him. I would say, I'm so sorry, Hector, that we could never find you for your family. And I always wonder, how is his family faring after all this? I like part of me wants to find out and and the other half wants to not, because if they're not doing well, then I would take the blame for it. It's like we failed his family. In the years to come when you receive one diagnosis. After another, did you feel like the city failed you? Oh, for sure, the city failed me. And the mayor failed us. They all failed. They all failed. There was no love. There was no love to us at all. Only on the day of the anniversary. All those same politicians are going to say, never forget, we never forget. But, you know, when we're in front of them telling them that, all these people are dying and we need to extend the World Trade Center bill. It took 18 years. I was shocked. I was shocked. These are the Republicans that I voted for since I was 18 years old. This is how they treat us. The Democrats all love, oh yes, we want to, we're, we're gonna help you do that. And, and here are the Republicans, the total opposite. I see it now when they're trying to pass bills. You say, oh no, you know, they saying it on, on to a reporter that they care, they care, and you know, and then you, you go by your business. But then when you see it firsthand, when you visibly see these politicians and they belittle you and they make you feel less than a whole person or a human when when they they zero in on a minority female, the only minority female first responder on that team, points his finger at me and says, why did the country need to foot the bill for you to buy a pair of shoes? To me, not to them, but to me. And I look down and I'm wearing sneakers. I'm wearing $30 sneakers. Richie Palmer, the warden of the downtown correctional facility, almost got up and punched him. And I grabbed him and I said, oh no, I'll handle this. And I said, I don't know who you're talking about for shoes, but I'm retired three quarters. I have my pension, I have my medical, I have, and I have everything. I'm here fighting for the people who cannot get this. The people who don't have the money to pay for their medication or too sick to get a job and they're being denied. I said, I, I'm a cancer survivor. I was assigned down there for 10 months. I was injured. I have 25 surgeries. So you tell me what shoes am I looking for? And he goes, well, well, well. And he starts like 
you know, stuttering and stuff like that. I said, so where's your shoes? What shoes are you buying? Is the country buying for me? Why? Because I'm Latina? Because Latinos are typecast as welfare recipients? I had a, a nicest board member tell me, well, I think the fire department gives you everything you want because of your looks. There goes those looks again. And, and I said, well, what do you mean? Um, so you mean that Sloan Kettery lied to me about having cancer or NYU lied to me that I had COPD, but it's the fire department that's giving me everything I want. And you're telling me they're all lying. It's just that mentality. And that was the same mentality that we got in um, DC where he says, well, you know, you're not really that sick. You know, I think because of your looks that you're just looking for a pair of shoes type of thing. Since we are honoring the 20th anniversary, is there something about 9-11, the Aftermath Project, or even the years that followed that you really want people to understand? That was one of the worst days. New York banded together so that we could bring back New York City to its original self. The uniform members all set aside their differences and their departments to work together. The Red Cross people that came, um, construction workers that decided to, because they didn't have to come down there, they could use, they could have gone anywhere else, that they felt they needed to be there and to be part of something that was bigger than us in our lives. And I think that moving forward, a country should realize that we are human and we deserve the respect that we're supposed to get. And not just by saying, never forget, we'll never forget, but by actual actions and not just by words. And ensuring that if this ever happens again in another town, another state, that they will be there to say, you know, we're here. We're going to make sure that everybody's taken care of and we're going to take care of you if, if you get sick. Whether you're blue or red, it's, it's not about that. It's you're representing the people and not just the color of your affiliate as a Republican or a, a Democrat. These are people and these are lives that you're dangling for whatever agenda that you have. They're playing with human lives. And if you're going to say never forget, then never forget us either, because it's not just a word. I mean, we're taxpayers, we're humans, we did our job, and you need to ensure that we're all protected. As a single mother with two kids, the pain of the aftermath and, and, all, and all the health concerns you had after, how have you moved through your life with that trauma? I'm still very uneasy around crowds. I'm always looking for the exit sign. I do not get on the trains. Planes, I'm afraid that I would be put in a situation where I'm going to have to run for my life or rescue people running from their lives. And since I was injured in I, my limitations are much more greater now than when I was 20 years ago. Um, what would I do? 
what would I do if this happens again? Would I run toward it or would I run away from it? And I keep saying I'm going to run away, but I doubt that I'll do that. I'll definitely run into it to to help people because it's in it's in my blood. It was in my blood when I was in my early 20s when I when I joined and until my very last play. And I mean, nobody does this job because of the pay, because the pay sucks. You do this job because you get the calling, just like you get a calling to become a priest, a nun, a nurse, or a doctor. You, 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 you just don't do this for money because nobody's going to get rich being a uniform member. They do it because they heard the call and they decided to join the department and, and become a first responder. Well, thank you for answering that call. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and, you know, that never forget slogan you've mentioned a couple times. I think the only way we get past never forget is to understand what exactly we're not forgetting. Exactly. And you've helped us with that today. So thank you for your time. Thank you for your service. Thank you. Yvonne Sanchez. Stay safe. Bye-bye. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle to everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. 
whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. So my name is uh, John Ryan, and I'm uh, 61. And my job after 9-11 was the commander of the rescue recovery operation. Where were you the day of 9-11? I initially was home. It was my daughter's first day of school. And I had taken off to uh, attend her first day of preschool. I got a call that a plane had crashed into the World Trade Center. I turned on the news and... Um, I saw, you know, the uh, smoke coming from the tower. And while watching that, the second plane struck. And I realized that we were under attack. Upon my arrival into Manhattan and making my way down to the World Trade Center site, uh, both towers had already collapsed. And then I was present when uh, Building 7 collapsed into the street. There was very little traffic going in. Most of the uh, vehicles that I saw going in were either police or fire uh, that had their lights and sirens blaring. When you're dealing with any of any type of situation like that, that it's an unknown, you're sort of in a hyper state of awareness. They're trying to think through multiple scenarios as to what your role will be and what you would do when you you get there. In those early months, what did a typical day of yours look like? Our typical day would begin with a briefing. So we broke the site up into two 12-hour tours. I was the day tour commander at a rescue recovery operation, and a uh, Lieutenant Bill Keegan was the night tour commander. When we would meet in the morning, he would brief me on what occurred in the previous 12 hours. And then in the evening, when he came in, I would brief him as to what we had done during the previous 12. And then we would hold site meetings with all of the, the different agencies and uh, trades that were participating in the rescue recovery operation. And we would, in the morning, go over what we hoped to achieve in the next 24 hours. And then we would also go over what we achieved in the previous 24 hours. What was the morale of your colleagues in those daily reports? So the 
morale was high and, you know, it was the combination of feelings there, you know, sadness for the people that were lost, but also driven uh, to try to recover as many of them as we could. And not only amongst our colleagues, but amongst the 2,753 people that were lost at the site. And how many of those people did you recover? So over the course of the nine months, we recovered in excess of 20,000 sets of remains. However, to this day, there are 1,106 people that have not been identified. You remember the exact amount of people that you were trying to recover? I know now that number. You know, at the time, you know, it was a search and rescue mission. And as um, we cleared areas, we were focused on finding people and finding remains. Um, so we really didn't have uh, an understanding of how many people we had recovered at that point. How did you process the fact that this very quickly became a recovery mission rather than a rescue mission? You know, in the beginning, our hopes were to find people alive in voids. And we were basing that on, you know, the size of the buildings, some of the areas that we were searching that we found voids in. So that gave us hope that there could be areas that, you know, people were surviving in. We were so focused and we were so intent on trying to recover as many people as possible. What we did take into consideration in the early days was based on subject matter experts from the urban search and rescue teams. And they had reported that in other locations, in particular in uh, earthquakes where there had been collapses, that people were found alive as long as 14 days after the collapse. So we were using that as a benchmark and uh, hoping that given that time period of potential survival, we were hoping that during that period that we may find other people uh, that had survived the, uh, the collapse. After that 14-day period, we still had hope, but we also realized that the odds of survival were diminishing. When you did identify the remains, did you have to talk to family members? You would talk to family members on a regular basis because they would come to the site and would look for an update as to the prospects of finding their lost loved one. How do you do that job? So uh, I don't think it's one that you can prepare for. It's one there that relies very heavily upon your, your experience and the combination of experience, but also having people that are performing that job with you, uh, having that same mindset there, that same focus, that same determination, and that same drive to try to recover uh, as many people as possible and return them to their families. Do you remember a phone call you got from a family member where that determination to get the job done, where that focus broke because you could hear the pain on the other side of the phone? I received a letter, and the letter was a um, note from a grandmother 
thanking me for finding uh, some remains of her grandson. And um, she was from the Jewish faith and the importance to have something to bury of a lost loved one is significant in the uh, Jewish religion. Um, it wasn't like I had saved her grandson. I had just recovered him. But the significance to her um, was not lost on that. Why did that letter affect you so much? I think, you know, being somebody that has chosen a career to help people and save people, receiving some type of thanks for not saving or helping somebody, but just recovering them. You know, I guess um, unfulfilled, I guess. You know, we had recovered, you know, uh, a body part of her grandson. But what it meant to her was, I guess, some degree of peace. As we're approaching the 20-year anniversary, I was wondering, what do you think the general public doesn't understand about 9-11 and the aftermath that you think they should understand? Up until the last few years, every person, for the most part, that I interacted with was able to tell me exactly where they were and what they were doing. It's only a recent uh, phenomenon that I'm seeing is that some people today that were either too young or weren't born so they have no firsthand remembrances of 9-11, an experience to a historical event. In some ways, that's the one of the, the importances of uh, Joel's book and his photographs, is that you know, if he had not taken those photos and not placed them into a book, all of that would have been lost to our memories. And uh, people would have been reliant on us describing the event and different things that occurred in the nine months that we were there. So let's take a look at a few of these images together. This is uh, an assembled panorama of the site from the World Financial Center. It's the portion of the South Tower, and then you see the uh, the hotel, um, the, what was left of the hotel, and that brings back memories of the 93 attack. Because the area right below the hotel was where the uh, van was detonated on February 26, 1993, and uh, killed six people, including uh, Monica Rodriguez-Smith and her unborn child. Next here is a photo of the ironworkers. We wouldn't have been able to complete the rescue recovery operation without the ironworkers and their ability to, to cut the steel so that it could be removed. You know, that's uh, my tribute to them. Right here is an image of a rescue dog on the plaza. Were dogs often employed in the rescue? So they were, and there was a significant number of dogs, not only rescue dogs, relief dogs, cadaver dogs, and there was a number of them to the point there that Suffolk County that has a very uh, extensive mobile animal rescue hospital a bus that they brought that in there. And, you know, unlike people, you know, the dog can't tell you when they're thirsty or tired or, you know, suffering from some type of exposure. The handlers would 
bring them to that area there. And I remember it being positioned on West Street there, uh, where they would then uh, hydrate them and provide them a degree of rest and, and comfort. Did they make you feel better? I guess it's a natural reaction, you know, uh, and it, you know, it serves as a distraction as well to see, you know, animals. You know, one of the things there that in the early days, you know, other than people, uh, the one thing that was noticeable was that the site was sort of void of life. You know, as we got further into the recovery and really as we got to the end and we were so focused that we never really looked at as something that was gonna going to end. And I remember being on uh, West Street there and uh, the trees were starting to bud and there were birds that had come back. You know, both those things there in some ways sort of gave you a sense that, you know, things were returning to some degree of normal. Of course, there was nothing normal about this situation. As the days went on, how did you process all the lives lost? Everybody was different. I mean, for myself, you know, I just stayed focused on performing and moving around the site responding to every recovery that was made. So when you think about it over the course of the nine months, you know, 20,000 recoveries. And while we didn't do it in the beginning, um, we developed a routine when we did do a recovery in that the remains were placed in a body bag. The body bag was placed into a Stokes basket covered in an American flag. Then we would get one of the on-site chaplains to come down and do a prayer service. And then we would identify six people that would act as an honor guard to carry the remains to the either an, uh, an awaiting ambulance or to one of the on-site morgues. And all work would stop and uh, everybody would line up and f perform an honor guard to the recovery of that individual. So it was a, uh, a process that once we developed it, was performed on a regular basis. You make it sound like staying mission-focused is an easy task. No, it's a, you know, I always describe it as that you can't answer to two masters. Mission focus, you know, consumes everything that you do. So it's not like you do this and then do other things. You know, you, you may do them, you know, as a distraction one day here, one day there. But your your overall time and focus is on everything that has to do with, you know, preventing an event of this magnitude. As someone who was intimately involved in trying to repair a part of this country, what can we learn from how you carried that grief with you? You know, if you remember in the days after 9-11, people came together. You know, I mean, I can remember leaving, you know, the rescue recovery operation and traveling north on West Street. And there were people lined up in the center island and on the sidewalk there, you know, cheering us. There was really a sense of togetherness that, that really overwhelmed, you know, society as a whole. You know, and that grew out of, you know, the, the tremendous losses there. So when you go through the 9-11 the museum and you go into the family viewing area, 
2,977 people that were lost on 9-11, not only at the World Trade Center, but aboard the flights and in the Pentagon and in the field in Pennsylvania. And their families were asked to submit photos. The photos in particular stand out because the majority of the photos show people smiling. And I think it's something that we even appreciate even more now with the COVID pandemic is that closeness that we share with people. Again, it gets back to, so Jimmy Richards, who's the fireman in the, the bottom photo, he lost his son in, um, you know, over the nine months, um, uh, most of the times that I interacted with him, um, he wasn't smiling. And then Marty, who's the person holding a item in his hands, you know, he's smiling. And uh, I think in some way he found this little piece of treasure. And then the EMS worker, you know, uh, is smiling and the construction worker and the iron worker. I mean, and that's the, the beauty of, uh, uh, Joel's photo is that, you know, I remember all these people. Why don't we take a look at these four photos from May 28th? These are four photos that were of the May 28th ceremony in which we cut down the final column in preparation for the final day ceremony. And one of the people involved in the putting together the program for the uh, final day was going to exclude some of the workers. So much like everybody that worked the rescue recovery operation, you know, the people from the trade unions, the truck drivers, the laborers, the iron workers, you know, everybody poured their heart and soul into doing this mission. And then to show up one day and be told that you, there was no work for you and you were given a pink slip and you were basically excluded from coming into the site was very emotionally upsetting to them. And then being told that they weren't going to be able to participate in the final day ceremony it didn't sit well with them nor with us, um, given how important they were in making this mission successful. So we decided that in recognition of all those that had not been recovered or identified at that point, but also in recognition of all of the efforts that had been put forth by all of the people that worked the site, we designated May 28th as the Workers' Day. And in the evening of May 28th, we brought down all of the people. We didn't exclude anybody. And we had them participate in a ceremony in which we cut down that final column. You know, we came in as individuals, but we left as one when we all came together to prepare the column in the same way in which remains were treated. We lowered the column. We covered it in black bunting. We covered it in a large American flag. And we prepped it to be driven out on May 30th during the, the closing ceremony. And if you go to the, the sequence of photos in which we lower the column, um, I'm actually in the top photo there. That we didn't notice that while we were doing that there, that the entire crew of the USS Eward Dreamer, which was an aircraft carrier that had come in to New York and was docked up by the Intrepid. When we finally drew our attention away from the column and we looked up, we saw them silhouetted against the night sky in their white uniforms saluting us. And again, it was uh, a tribute to all of the people that worked in the rescue recovery operation. It was sort of a fitting 
end to that mission. And one thing that I've come to learn is that through all of this, you know, there's a thread that runs through it and bonds us all. And you are now part of that thread as well. So um, I thank you for your service and for your time and your desire to want to hear the story of the people that were lost and the people that responded to it. Lieutenant John Ryan, thank you very much. My name is Bianca Quintanilla. I am 31 years old and I'm representing the memory of my mother, Linda K. Petrano. She was actually one of the FEMA workers that represented the Salvation Army at the time. Where were you on 9-11? So it's a funny story. I was actually at home sick. I, I kept in touch with my mother all day because she couldn't stay home with me. There was a really busy day at the office, so she had to be there. So, you know, periodically she'd call me throughout the day just to make sure I was laying down and, you know, and all of a sudden she called and she's like so frantic. And I, I just remember like, you know, mom, what's going on? Calm down. She said, turn on the news, turn on the news. And when I turned on the news, that's when I knew that everything basically changed for everyone. You know, like I couldn't believe what I was seeing. She's like, I'm on my way home, but it's a lot of traffic. So as soon as she gets to the house, it's so frantic because she's trying to get my brother and my sister out of school. Of course, they're at school. I'm at home thinking I'm having a, a day off, basically. So it's not actually that funny when I think about it <laughs> because I got in trouble for playing hooky. So no, it wasn't that funny. I could have went to school, but she was already gone. So I stayed home. But, you know, like it was so frantic. And instantly we started calling all of our family members because my uncle actually lives in New York City, you know, so he was working like maybe blocks from the trade center. And where did you live? We lived in Alexandria, Virginia at the time. So we weren't very far from the Pentagon, you know, it was just the craziest thing. So we're calling my uncle and we're like, are you okay? And for a while there, we didn't get a response. And when he finally called us back, he's in tears. Like you could hear the fear in his voice. He was just so upset. He, you know, he literally had to run for his life. Like he said he could turn around and he could see the towers falling. Like that's how close he was. It was horrible. And then my mother, you know, instantly she's like, what can I do? You know, because, you know, working with the Salvation Army, they always did volunteer stuff. And any time a mom could get her hands in there, she would. Like, that was her thing. Like, she was a, a, a caregiver. Like, she wanted to do anything and everything to help anyone she could. Was she always like that? Yes, always. Up until she went to the trade centers. So that was like a turning point for our lives. You know, everything changed after that for us. Okay, so why don't we take a look at this photo of your mother who was down at the World Trade Center site. This is taken by Joel Meyerowitz. You hadn't seen this before. No, no, I have not seen that. And it was, it's awesome to see, but you can also see that that was like when she was actually leaving because I remember her coming home with the helmet and everyone's signatures on it. And you can see that she has a darkness in her eyes. Like, she's no longer the happy person she left as. And I know that might sound cliche, but going there, I don't think that anyone really is mentally prepared. And it doesn't make you not a strong person. You know, it's just, it's a lot. So the woman you see in this photo is not the woman you knew as your mother. What happened that led to this image? 
the first night that she got there, she called us and, you know, she was telling us, she kind of like dumbed it down for me because I was so young. But of course, my older brother and sister, you know, they got the, the raw deal of it. As soon as she got there, she said that it was so much chaos, you know, like she was walking into literally a bomb scene, you know, like everything blew up, people's lives, people's everything. The people are all waiting outside the gate. And she said that the only thing she could remember was the smell of flesh. That just mentally messed her up. But of course, she was very strong. So she held it together the whole time she was there. But when she came home, she was just gone. After the trade center, she initially suffered from PTSD for the rest of her life. That was what it was, depression and yeah. She was working for the Salvation Army. What did a typical day of hers look like? So my mom was an administrative assistant. She wasn't in the, you know, in the aspect of saving lives or anything like that. You know, like she'd give a meal to someone if they needed a meal, but it wasn't anything as if, you know, the firefighter or paramedic, anything like that. But it's just that raw scene for her. She, she was very strong, so she could do it. It's just that situation that she was put in at that time really triggered something. And you noticed the change in her depression, even at age 11. Oh, yeah. What did that look like? It was actually pretty scary because when she came back, she was a little like distant, although she talked about it quite often, not really to the extent of like overly talking about it, but she would like every so often let out a little bit more about it, you know, in pieces. Yeah, pieces of what her mind would actually let out, you know, because it was pretty traumatizing because she kept saying that she wanted to do more and she couldn't do more. And she just kept seeing the people wait outside the gate. As the people would like frantically run up to the gate when someone would come out when they found a body. What were those pieces like that she shared? <sighs> Just like about the people that she would talk to, you know, like the family members that she would try to like comfort. It was so many bits and pieces of the story that were told. Of course, she told about, you know, like, oh, my goodness, you know, today we had a breakthrough. We found three live people. They're, of course, they're really injured, but we were able to get them to the hospital, you know, like she would say stuff like that. but. There's not really much that she told in whole. After she had returned home, she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. So then that was a whole nother whirlwind that she went through. So in the 10 months of the recovery, she's diagnosed with MS. And then what happens? And then she gets depressed and she realizes that she actually needs all this help from like her parents. Her mother actually lived in Virginia with us, you know, near us at the time. And then her father was in New York. So I didn't know where one day we come home from school. She says, guys, we're moving to New York. So we moved back to New York and now we're going to go live in my grandfather's. You know, my grandfather had two houses. So we we're living in his extra house. Where was that? Utica, New York. It's kind of like she let the depression take her. She never made a full recovery after that. I'm only able to speak on it because that responsibility fell on me. And my brother, when he turned 18, he went off to the military. My sister was off doing her own thing. So I initially had to take care of my mother, cooking for her, giving her her shots, everything. I don't think that anyone's ever really like checked on her from this situation. Yes, I know that this was a job that she had to do, but it initially caused, you know, the downfall with their, all of her depression. Every day she seriously relived it. How do you mean Okay, so <laughs> without making her sound like overly, you know, with her sickness, like the bipolar schizophrenia that ended up triggering as well, she would periodically, quite frequently do like living memorials where she would put her helmet on and set up candles and set like right outside of her house. Thinking about it, I'm trying not to get emotional, but all the kids at school would laugh about it. And I'm like, no, 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 don't laugh. My mom's going through something. She's just really sad. Like she helped so many people. 
and nobody understood. You know, of course I understood because I was there when it happened, but nobody understood what she was going through. So she initially got looked at as if she was insane, but this is what triggered it. And by no means am I saying like, I don't, I didn't want her to go where I, you know, I regret the choice of being okay with my mother going. It's just, I feel that that was the key to unlocking this treasure that we got. And I'm not saying it's a good treasure. She would do these memorial services outside of your house. Did you attend them? No, she would kind of just go sit out there by herself. I don't think I knew how to handle it. So I would have probably snickered or even, you know, like, mom, what are you doing? You know, and that was just a nervous thing to do. But she was very serious about it. She wanted to pay honor to the people that lost their lives. It it hurt so bad that all these people lost their lives and I couldn't do more. And at the same time, what could she have done more? She went and she did what she had to do. Cater to the people, you know, give them the food, give them the clothing they need, give them the toiletries. But yeah, initially that wasn't enough for her because it felt like she should have done more. Where do you think that instinct came from for her to always want to do more for people? before this she was basically an angel seriously she would help anyone and everyone that's just in her nature she wanted to nurture even as her as a mother she was just a nurturer you know she wanted to take care of everyone and like her parents are awesome parents you know what I mean they loved her she grew up with that love you know I don't know it's just I don't I don't know why it hurt her so bad you know because she did what she wanted to do. Like, that was one of the things that she prided herself on. That was her moment, you know, and she felt so honored and blessed that she was able to go help people. But in return, she got basically her youth taken away. Because my mom, even up until she passed away, like, she wasn't living the way she needed to live. She was living in her house every day, didn't leave the house except for a doctor's appointment, you know? That depression, she didn't want to be out with people. She didn't want to feed herself okay like it was that bad i really think that that just hurt her to the core sorry i'm trying not to cry no it's all right the only thing i can take from it is that she just wanted to do more and she felt that what she did wasn't adequate enough but when i think about what more could she have done i don't know she went as soon as she could the first team that they put together she was in it And I want to say she was gone for about two months. So she was gone for a good amount of time, but it just wasn't enough. Not for her anyways. Really, she only came home because she had kids, you know. (laughs) She would have stayed trying and trying and trying. And so when you see this photo of her in that time, what do you see? Oh, gosh, I just see the beauty. She wanted to be there. Even her hand, she's like basically like giving, (laughs) like... When I saw the picture and then I started laughing because that stupid little purse that she's got on, I used to drag her about it all the time. I'm like, mom, you do not need to carry that purse. Why do you have your glasses around your neck like that? Please, mom, just put them on your face. But if she put them down, she would lose them. So (laughs) the picture is just so her. (laughs) Like her hand, seriously. She's showing that she's giving, you know. (laughs) Like, what do you need? Like, you could go to her. She was just such a calm, loving person. She was someone that you could always go to, and I assume you always did go to her growing up. After 9-11, that changed. Yep. It was kind of like she had to come to us. (laughs) The roles reversed. It's crazy because I don't know if that's how, you know, God knew that's the way life would work because we were raised that way. We could always take care of ourselves. But after 9-11, it just definitely changed. So what has your relationship 
to 9-11 now? After my mom passed, for me, it's more so sad. Because before, I used to think of it like, oh, man, that's the day my mom actually got to help people, you know? And, like, when I would talk to her, I would try to call her around 9-11 every year just because I don't want her to get that deep depression because it would it was like an ongoing cycle. She'd be okay, and then as soon as it got close to 9-11, she'd have her breakdown. I would call her, and I'd be like, Mom, you know, you did such amazing things. That it, you know, and I would talk about what I saw in the news or whatever, you know, and that would kind of bring her some joy. But as of now, 9-11 is just a, a more sadness for me. Before, it used to be some joy because I knew what my mom did for it. Her small part in it played a big part in her life. And now it has none of that joy. No. And I want it to, but no. These people that went there did so much. And I just really hope that these people are all okay. Everyone's different, so I'm sure that these people all have a normal life after this, you know? Or... Or if it affected them, it didn't affect them the way it affected my mom. Sorry. I don't want to sound selfish, but but I truly feel, you know, that this is what caused it. And it's not just me that feels this way, you know, like my brother and my sister, you know, we're all like, oh my gosh, you know, the thing that she prided herself on is what hurt her. It's like the very thing that lifted her up was the thing that ultimately took her down. Yes, exactly. Yep. Yep, she was holding on to the balloons, but there was also weights on her feet. You know, it was just, it's just like nothing could balance out. That balance was gone. You know, when I look at this photo of her, there's over 300 photos in this book. I only chose like four people to talk to. Oh, that is so cool. One of the reasons is that there aren't many women in the book. But two, I saw this woman... And I can't really explain it, but I felt like um, a gravitational pull. <laughs> yes. He would have felt that in real life, too. I tell you, like, seriously, she was just so amazing. <laughs> and I'm not saying that because she's my mom. It's just like even kids at school, like, can we come to your house? Is your mom home? Like, they wanted to hang out with my mom before they hang out with me. <laughs> yeah, so she just had a beautiful everything about her. Her favorite phrase was, to know me is to love me. So if you knew her, you would love her. To know me is to love me. Yep. <laughs> is that what you tell people now? <laughs> no. Because if I said that, that would be looked at as cocky. And, you know, I'm not cocky. I'm, I'm her daughter, so that's cocky enough. Because if anyone ever had an issue, all she'd have to say is, they're just jealous of you, you know? So we always had a little chip. <laughs> this may sound weird, but what did her voice sound like? Oh, my gosh. She was very calm. Like, she rarely yelled. She was always level-headed with most things, you know. <laughs> of course, I've saved every voicemail that I had from her, but in her later years, they were kind of silly. That's incredible. It's so great that you've saved those. My son started school, and I wanted to call her so bad to tell her, you know, oh my gosh, you started school, and then I realized, hey, I can't call my mom. So then I just listened to this silly little voicemail, and I'm like, okay, she wouldn't want me sad right now. She'd want me happy. I don't know why I'm holding on to it, but I'm holding on to it, okay? <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Oh, gosh. I do when I'm sitting in the car just listening to voicemails over and over. Why do you do that? Because I don't want to hurt anybody else in my process of hurting, you know? Everyone expects you to kind of, like, be over it. And I'm not over it. My brother and my sister, they're fine. I'm not because I talk to my mom every single day. So since she passed away, that's gone, and I still want to call her. And I know I can't, but I want to. So... 
for me that eases it, you know, just to hear her voice. What do you mean everyone expects you to move on? If I start talking about, you know, missing my mom, everyone's like, oh, okay, you know, yeah, you're going to hurt, but, you know, it won't hurt forever. I mean, it's been a whole year and it, it like, kind of seems like it hurts worse. <laughs> so, I don't know. You're not supposed to grieve that long. That's what everyone keeps telling me. And I'm like, <laughs> I feel like I'm going to grieve the rest of my life. That's the woman that gave birth to me, you know? You feel like you may grieve for as long as she grieved what happened on 9-11. No, and that's what I'm saying. That's why I try to get myself out of it because I don't want that to overtake me. Because this was something traumatic for me. Like, you know, the woman who I thought could never go, you know, actually left. But it, in essence, it, it makes sense because my whole life she prepared us for if she died. We knew what to do with her if she ever died. Seriously, she'd be like, if I die, just burn me up, okay? She's like, I don't want you guys having to worry about paying for any stupid box to put me in. I don't want people coming to just stare at me. Yes, like, so she was all about, like, if she goes, don't waste any money, you know? How do you think she wanted you to live the rest of your years once she was gone? Oh, gosh, not to be sad. To kind of, like, laugh it off because that's what she did. Like, she would laugh stuff off. And in essence, that's what I have as well. You know, like, when something bothers me, I laugh it off. Even though it's not funny, I'm hurting, but I laugh just to get through it. That's how I'm, I'm thinking I'm supposed to live. I'm not supposed to be this sad person. And I'm not sad all the time. It's just, you know, when I when I want to tell her something and I can't. Seriously, like, I would call her for the stupidest stuff. Mom, I learned how to bake bread. And nobody else wants to hear that, but she'll want to know, you know, detail for detail. Oh, so when did you put the bacon powder? When did you put the salt? You know, she would want to know. Everyone else is like, okay, you made bread. Cool. I could buy a loaf at the store. <laughs> you know? The last couple of years, the conversation was like, every time I talked to her, I could replay the conversation word for word. She'd pick up the phone. Hey, hey, baby, how you doing? Cheer up, buttercup. Seriously, she wouldn't say much of anything. How's your day? Oh, nothing much. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. That was like basically like it. The conversations were maybe like five minutes. It'd more so be me rambling on, you know? And then the last time I talked to her, it was funny because the conversation was actually different. Like she actually held a whole conversation. What did you talk about? The last conversation is pretty stupid because I was a little upset because she called a couple times and I was like mom I said I would call you right back I'm getting my hair done you know so she called again she called again and then the last time she called her she's like okay I called you four times now you can talk to me for five minutes so you know I talked to her for five minutes but of course the whole five minutes I was kind of like okay mom what did you call to talk about and all she called to talk to me about was that she had put minutes on her phone so I could talk to her as long as I wanted <laughs> so hmm. Yep. Sorry. <laughs> All I take from this is that, you know, the strongest people fall. And if you need that help, you need to actually reach out to someone to actually talk about it. Because, you know, balling it up and, and not actually letting it out plays a toll on your mental. No one needs to deal with that. And you felt like she bottled it up? In essence, yes. You know, like she would have her days where she would just want to talk and be that person that she used to be. And then she'd quickly go back into her shell. Since we are here in this moment, what do you want on the record to say about her and her memory as we close the chapter? Just that, you know, that the thing that she took pride in the most was the thing that actually hurt her the most. But it didn't take away her joy from actually being able to do it. And so, you know, her heart was still there. It's just mentally... She wasn't.
that's like it in a nutshell, you know? Because she still wanted to give, 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 but it's just she physically and mentally couldn't. I mean, even though she's gone, she still helped so many people, you know? So, I mean, that's what we have to live on, her memory of actually being that good person. And there's not many people that would just drop everything they had to, to go and try to do what they could. I mean, I think she did her part. <laughs> she did it well. Do you have some of that same instinct in you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I am my mother's daughter. <laughs> like, seriously. She's one of the reasons why me and my brother and sister are so goal-oriented. Like me, I have my own business. My brother has his own restaurant. Well, I have a couple restaurants. My brother, my sister's a nurse. You know, she's an RN. <laughs> we all are on the path that she put us on to be strong, helpful people, you know, like we'll give the shirts off our back for anyone that needs it as well. You know, the shoes off my feet, anything anyone needs. There you go. <laughs> we definitely all have that in us. So she's living on through you three. Oh yeah, definitely. Anyone will tell you Linda made some, some strong kids. She <laughs> definitely brought that to the table. She wasn't going to have kids that weren't able to do things for herself. As we've been thinking about 9-11 and the 20th anniversary of it, we keep talking about this idea of grief and trauma and how the hell we keep moving forward, especially in the 20 years since then. As we leave, I wonder for you how you plan to um, live with it in the years to come. I mean, for me, I'm going to work my ass off, sorry, excuse my language, work my butt off to make sure that I live up to what she expected of me. As far as starting my business, I would call her. I'm like, mom, I don't know if this is going to work. She's like, just do it. You know, and then I'd send her the picture and she's like, wow, that's amazing. So for me, I got her artistic side. I can create and, you know, I do all these th amazing custom creations for people. And I got that from her because she was very beautiful. Oh my gosh. She could do such amazing drawings. She was really good at art. For me, I've taken that with me. I'm taking her drive with me, her willpower. That's what I'm taking. <laughs> that's how I survive. If you take that with you, does that mean this year on 9-11 that you may be okay. I won't say I'll be okay, but I'll get through it. And I'm not going to let it, let me sit in the room all day, you know? I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to actually be with my family and not be secluded, you know? <laughs> you may not be okay, but you'll get through it. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to lie and say, "Yeah, I'm going to be fine," you know? <laughs> I I know that's not going to happen. But it definitely gives me some peace that, you know, she's being remembered by other people and not just me. Not just my immediate family, but by other people, you know. Well, thank you for um, sharing her with us. Yes, definitely. Thank you for letting me share her with you. Such a pleasure. The privilege is all mine. Bianca, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Joel, before we go, is there a day in the aftermath that you especially remember? A moment... You've held close to you after all these years. Your question brings a, an image to mind immediately. It was, a, it was an incredibly beautiful October day, early October. Sun was hot. I was walking through the pile, and two cops came over to me, said, hey, what are you doing here? No photographs. you got to leave right now. And I said, I, I'm working. I, you know, here's my pass. And... and uh, and I said, well, um, my car is down there, pointing to the northern end. And I said, so I've got to walk there. It's the only way I'll, I'll get out of here. And they said, okay, but no more pictures. I said, okay, absolutely. 
And I, I left them and I walked away. And about a hundred feet later, I come across this scene of a gigantic, maybe the biggest crane in America, I think they had brought in to start doing some heavy lifting. And it was a bright red crane with some red trucks around it. And the sun was hard on them. And behind it, smoke was rising. And, and behind that were all the crushed structures. And then layered behind that was the landscape of skyscrapers in lower Manhattan. And I'm standing there in awe of this incredible, majestic image of destruction and decay and the past and maybe the future. And, and I'm feeling the hot fall sun on my back. And you know, it feels really good when it's a chilly day, but the sun makes you feel good to be alive. And I suddenly think, huh, how can I be feeling this? I'm standing in this graveyard with almost 2,000 people lost and dead in here, and, and I'm feeling good to be alive. And I was at a, a kind of breaking point at that moment. I thought, how can I let this image go? It's so meaningful in many ways. I understood then that the way memory works for all of us is that time erases step by step, almost drop by drop, the fact of any given moment. Whether it's a catastrophe like 9-11 or the death of a parent or a loved one, over time we move further away. And it's nature's way of healing. And I stood there dueling with that understanding and the reality and thinking, I'm in here to make the record. And if the day creates a scene of incredible beauty, in spite of the fact of the destruction and disaster, then this is part of the tell. It's how we move into the future. It's how we have the courage to go forward. And when I think about 9-11 now, Sure, the shock of that act and the extraordinary success of it is still a powerful memory. But more powerful than that was the time actually spent with other human beings doing the work and the service that was necessary to clean it all away and start fresh. Because that's what it was all about to prepare the ground for the next positive forward step toward the future. Joel Meyerwitz, thank you very much. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for inviting me and for asking these questions. And let's see what the future brings. Bye. Thank you.
And that's our show. Special thanks this week to Eric Lures and Guy Greenberg. They ran around New York City for us, bringing microphones to people. Also, another special thanks to Annalie McGavin and Joel Meyerwitz. And of course, a big thanks to Lieutenant John Ryan, Amadeo Poli, Yvonne Sanchez, and the daughter of the late Linda Vitrano, Bianca Quintanilla. To learn more about how and where you can support first responders and their families, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com slash aftermath. If you'd like to purchase a copy of Aftermath, we've included links to Joel's incredible book on our website. You can listen and subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And to join our mailing list, drop us a line at TalkEasyPod at gmail.com. Our executive producer is Chenixa Bravo. Our associate producers are Caitlin Dryden and Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our editors for today's episode are Clarice Guevara, Eve Gershon, and Caitlin Dryden. Our illustrations are by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gamberzak, Orion Wong, Ian Jones, Isabel Primavera, and Ethan Seneca. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Callie Syringus. The show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with a new episode. Until then, stay safe and so long. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the Customer Experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. 
and an even better way to say, I told you so. Ganenta by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you, and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.